I want to be clear. I live in Los Angeles, but I'm not from here. I work here, but I don't belong to this place. But I've always been fascinated by people who do, just generally speaking, people who feel they belong somewhere, that intangible feeling that tethers them so tightly to a place. It's like a spider silk, almost invisible to the naked eye, yet it's one of the strongest fibers on earth. And when those individual strands come together, it creates a web strong enough to call home. And for some people, they feel so strongly about their home and their community, they'd even risk their lives for it. On this day, in early November 2018, I saw that, clear as day, and I just couldn't get it out of my head. And maybe that's because I wish I felt that way about somewhere. I worked at KCRW at the time, which is a public radio station. Stream KCRW's all This is Press Play channel. on KCRW. I'm Madeline Brand. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiatakis. This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center. Back then, we broadcasted out of the basement of the Santa Monica College. It was cramped, desks practically on top of each other, with just a touch of mustiness. It had that stale fluorescent lighting, and that kind of reminded me of being in a Walmart. Wildfire coverage had been nonstop for days. There are two big wildfires burning in two different parts of California today. In the southern part of the state, fire is moving across Ventura County, the same county where 12 people died in a mass shooting on Wednesday night. In southern California, the Hill and Woolsey fires force residents out of Los Angeles, Ventura, and Malibu from their home. The campfire had devastated paradise upstate. And closer to home, the Woolsey fire, the most destructive in L.A. County history was still burning. Not far from here in L.A., a deadly fire is still burning. Two people have been confirmed dead, and scores of people remain out of their homes. It felt like the whole state was burning. You could smell it in the air outside. People were tense. Um, I'm seeing a lot of smoke right now. It's daytime, but it looks like nighttime. The, the sun is just like this little blob with a kind of a ring around Many, many homes completely burned to the ground. There was fire on both sides of the roadway. Many Angelinos were wondering what direction the fire might take, if it ever get contained. Yeah, the fire spread incredibly fast. And, and David, the level This of- fire has come roaring down the hillside in the last few minutes. Uh, a number of homes, a number of homes have been destroyed. Emergency workers in Northern California have found 13 more bodies. This makes the so-called campfire the deadliest single blaze in the history of that state, with a total of 42 lives lost. But on this particular morning, I saw something on TV that stopped me in my tracks. And with Malibu roads cut off, people there are bringing in supplies by boat including water, blankets, diapers, gasoline, and even some ice-cold beer. It was news footage of small boats off the coast of Malibu. The people on the boats were handing big cases of water and generators to surfers on longboards. It was totally surreal. I leaned in closer. There weren't ropes securing the cargo. They were just balancing it and paddling the supplies onto shore. I had a million questions. Why didn't the boats just land? 
Who were they? One thing was clear, though. This was the community coming together. I didn't see any emergency personnel. The goods went from the boat to the surfers and then down a line of people standing in the ocean. This level of collective resilience was striking. I didn't totally understand what I was seeing, but I got goosebumps watching. So many questions I didn't have the answer to. I decided I had to find out. This is Sandcastles, and I'm your host, Adriana Cargill. This is a podcast about home, how we create it, and why we fight so hard for it. In this first season, I thought we'd start off with a story that takes place near where I live. Point Doom is about 20 miles from my home in LA, and on a clear day, I can walk down to Venice Beach and just barely make out the point peeking around the corner of the Santa Monica Mountains. The original people who called this place home were the Chumash Native Americans. And to this day, it's still unceded Chumash land. They called it O'Malley Woo, meaning where the surf sounds loudly. It's now known as Malibu. And for the people who live there today, surf remains an essential part of their lives and this story. This is episode one, Castles Crumble. A warning on this episode and this whole series, there will be explicit language. Okay, here we go. Hi. Hey, how are you? How's it going? Good. Um, where do you want to go? We can go, I'll just, do you want to follow me or do you want to get in or what do you want to do? You can follow me if you want. This is Sam McGee. He was one of those surfers hauling supplies off the boats that day. We're meeting at a dirt turnoff on an unmarked road just off the highway in Point Doom, Malibu. Oh, it's not that far from here. Yeah, it's like right down the street. Perfect. Yeah. Let's do that. I'll follow you. Perfect. Sam was driving a huge black truck. A cigarette hung from his mouth. A wetsuit dangled from the side mirror. He was wearing a ripped-up t-shirt with lots of holes. Scruffy, sandy blonde hair covered in tattoos. With Point Doom, spelled D-U-M-E, tatted in black on his chest, peeping through the holes in his shirt. He wore cut-off jeans covered in dirt and paint. He's a carpenter and a lifelong Malibu resident. So that's, the, that's PCH right there. We're standing at the back end of that lot. But yeah, that's just, that was us just like waiting. And just that's like, when you were right. watching it come See, down See, and that the was hill. the first right there. That was the first little patch when it moved over to this side. So this is like right before I had told my parents to leave. We're standing in front of his childhood home where his parents still live. He grew up across the street from the Bigelows. They moved there in the early 60s two parents and five kids, all crammed into a one-story, 1,400-square-foot, ranch-style home. All of them, including Tim Bigelow, who you'll meet later, 
have cycled in and out of this house over the years with their kids. Sam's been friends with both the Bigelow boys his age, Monty and Bo, since he was in preschool. This is where, this is where we were. See, and this is where I was talking about. So see over here. You, you would never know looking at it except for that black palm tree. Uh-huh. Isn't it crazy these palms survived? The house is a bluish gray. It has a main building and a smaller one in back. There's also a courtyard surrounded by palm trees. Yeah, a lot. Of, it's weird because I guess trees can take like the, pretty much a lot of abuse because I saw a lot of trees that were like really completely on fire that are still like alive and they have come back. And uh, you'd, you would have looked at them after the fire and been like, oh, fuck, that's dead for sure. But then all of a sudden they're like putting out new growth and starting to like kind of look like trees again. Yeah, this is where it all was. Behind the Bigelow's home, you see some ashy brown hills. Those are the Santa Monica Mountains. They go on for miles. There's just a few black trees that dot the landscape. There's a way down from the mountains called Canaan Doom Road that falls Canaan Canyon and dumps out onto the point. That's the exact path the Woolsey Fire took to reach the point. It was here that Sam and the Bigelow's made their stand against the Woolsey Fire. I came here to report a story about a fire and the people who lived through it. But what I found was a story of adaption to a changing climate and an uncompromising resilience that may touch the lives of millions. But I'll get to that later. First, let's wind the clock back to Thursday, November 8th, 2018. I just remember talking to all my friends because we knew, I mean, as surfers, you kind of know what the wind's doing anyways. And so when there's Santa Ana winds, that potentially can be good for the waves, but it's also very terrible for fires. Santa Ana winds blow from the deserts inland out to the coast. It only happens a few times a year, but these hot winds can be up to 100 degrees. And they usually come in the fall when it hasn't rained in months. There's a lot of folklore surrounding them, mostly saying that they cause bad things to happen. But every Southern Californian knows that when the Santa Anas start blowing, they should be on high alert for wildfires, potentially monstrous ones. So we were well aware that there was a fire out there and we were in its path. I don't think any of us knew on Thursday that it would make it as far as it did. And they had good reason to think that. The point hadn't had a major fire since 1935. And back then, there weren't even any houses on the point. Not even spot fires had reached this peninsula in the last 40 years. Longer than any of them had been alive. I never thought it was going to make it to the point. When we've had fires in the past before, PCH has always been a huge fire block. The PCH, or Pacific Coast Highway, separates Point Doom from the rest of Malibu. The point itself is a small triangle-shaped strip of land that juts out into the Pacific, 
with huge bluffs, steep cliffs, and rocky beaches. Now, if you hear the word Malibu, and you're picturing Lady Gaga and Miley Cyrus mansions, this is not that Malibu. Sure, that one exists too, but this story is not about celebrities. This is about a side of Malibu you rarely hear about. Around a mile away from Sam, Drew Jacobson lives in a trailer park made up of about 300 homes called the Point Doom Club. My mom served, all my sons surfed, my husband surfs, we're a surfing family. Her sons all grew up surfing with Sam. Not so long ago, this place was very different than it is today. Families here were mostly blue collar with deep roots to the land and sea. Drew's husband spent almost four decades as a Malibu lifeguard. All three of their sons followed in their dad's footsteps as either seasonal or full-time lifeguards. Drew has lived in Malibu for over 50 years. Well, having been through so many fires out in Malibu, I could tell the day was not going to be good. I just got had a sense. It was just one of those days, it was eerie. Is that like you, they, you'd say it's an earthquake day? It's just that strange stillness in the sky. Things just don't feel quite right. Drew is a sort of neighborhood mom. Everywhere she goes, she bumps into people she knows. And her sloppy joes are legendary. So famous, they even have their own name. Sloppy Drews. She's never locked the front door of her trailer once. Not even at night. She works with preschool-age kids and looks the part. Wispy white hair, black-rimmed glasses, and a necklace made of colorful, rough stones. Sam sees her as a kind of second mom. On November 8th, while Sam was texting with her sons, Drew was in her trailer. And so we had the TVs on all day. When, when it starts over the hill, you start watching constantly, 24-7. Over the hill, meaning the Santa Monica Mountains. More than 8,000 acres, over 75,000 homes are under evacuation orders, but that number is expected to grow and grow very fast. Jane Wells is in the thick of it in Thousand Oaks, California. While she anxiously watched to see what was happening on the other side of Canaan Doom Road, Morgan Runyon was living it. He was at the Old Place restaurant. It's a wooden 1940s country store turned into a restaurant that's been in his family for over 50 years. It's a Malibu institution. Locals love this place. And it's a rare surviving piece of Malibu's ranch past. Morgan took over the family business after his dad passed away. Everybody knows him in the surf community of Point Doom, mostly because back in the 80s, he made a bunch of surf films called Run Man. Since then... They've become cult classics. Problem take seven suicidal sandbar surfers at Zuma Beach. Action. They're raw, rebellious, and don't take themselves too seriously, much like Morgan himself. They were such a thing in Malibu that Sam named his high school punk band after the movies. I was working here at the restaurant and I I smelled smoke. And I said to uh, my friend Brandon, who I was working with, I said, I smell smoke. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's that other fire. I'm like, no, it couldn't be. You know, the wind's still blowing out of the east. 
Morgan's blue eyes are bloodshot, likely the product of a lifetime of surfing. He's a no-nonsense, salt-of-the-earth type. T-shirt, blue jeans, calloused hands. The fire he means is the Hill Fire, which also started in Ventura County that Thursday. I said, I'm going to drive up to the top of Canaan above the two tunnels and just look out. And so I got up there and I saw a smoke plume off to the east. The smoke wasn't coming over us. But what he saw worried him. And I went back down. I was like, no, there's another fire. And he's like, no, 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 that's not you. And I was like, no, I, I saw it. What Morgan saw was the beginning of the Woolsey fire. It would go on to burn 96,000 acres, kill three people, and destroy whole neighborhoods in its fury. To date, it's the most destructive fire in LA County history. But Drew the teacher, Sam the carpenter, and Morgan, they didn't know any of that yet. So I was in the restaurant, and a, a really good customer, uh, no, no, her family, you know, she's like, hey, what do you think about that fire? She kind of caught me off guard, and I was about to, like, say to her, like, I'm really concerned. But I was also at the restaurant, I didn't want to be an alarmist, and I kind of brushed it off. Like, yeah, yeah, it should be all right, you know, things. But she, she's a mom and she knows when you're bullshitting, you know, and she kind of like picked up on it and was like cocked her head and she's like, no, but I refused to engage. But after that, I was, I, I realized that I was unsettled by it. I'm like, you know what? I'm going home. When he arrived home in Topanga Canyon in the Santa Monica mountains, he told his wife what he'd seen. Then he went to sleep. Something woke me at around 2.30 and it might have been like the wind picked up a bit, but I woke up thinking I was itching and I thought I had poison oak. And uh, so I went into the bathroom. It's like, I still get a little emotional talking about this. I looked, you know, down at my arms and I was like, oh man, I, I don't have poison oak. You know, that's, you know, I was like, why, why did I think? I was like, oh, that's my dad getting me up. His dad, Tom Runyon, had passed away a few years before the Woolsey fire. Tom's heart and soul went into that restaurant. Part of that is like I grew up cutting wood for the restaurant with my dad and oak grows in poison oak. And, you know, we'd be knee deep in it, cutting wood. And I'd be like, isn't this poison oak, dad? And he's like, yeah, 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 I don't get it. You won't get it. And that worked for a long time. I believed it. Like I, and I didn't get it. But so I got up and I realized I didn't have poison oak, but there was a reason why I got up. To Morgan, waking up feeling like he had poison oak was a call from beyond the grave, from his dead father, that he needed to get up and get going. He headed to the garage. And so I, I you know, my wife's like, my, Fran, she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm going to go down and get my truck loaded, and I have a, in my garage, I have a rolling rack that has all my hoses, my pumps, you know, gas for the pump, chainsaw, various things, and I loaded it all into my truck. And meanwhile, I was listening to the radio, and I could hear, you know, they were like, oh, the fire's 
you know, approaching the 101, and I was like, well, okay, I better get going. The 101 is a major freeway. He knew the roads might close as evacuation orders would start going into effect. His grandmother moved to Malibu in the 1930s, and his mom still lived in that house in West Malibu Park. He knew he couldn't save his mom's house, the Old Place restaurant, and his own home. So he chose to leave his own up to fate and fight to save the other two. I was driving on Mulholland and I dropped down into, I couldn't really see anything, but as I merged into Malibu Canyon, Las Virginis, I was able to look up the canyon, kind of to the north, and it was light, like the sun was rising over the hills. And I looked up and I was like, oh, the sun is rising in the wrong spot. I was like, this is not good. As Morgan drove in the darkness towards the glow of the Woolsey fire, Sam, the carpenter we met earlier, woke up in Point Doom. Friday morning is when it all really started for me. He got up around 6, 6.30 in the morning. I was on my way to work and I called my boss and I'm like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to drive up to the top and go see what's up with the fire and see what's going on. So my boss, he got in the car with me and we drove up Canaan. And when we got up to the top, it really wasn't that bad. And um, we were like, kind of like, well, what should we go to work? What should we do? You know, and we saw a little like halfway down, not even halfway down, like a quarter of the way down from the top, like a small little spot fire starting. So, they pulled over to watch. This is a clip from video Sam shot at 7.59 a.m. that morning. You could feel the heat, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Dude, look at that shit right there. That is fucking gnarly. Feel it. Look at the sparks. They watch as the mountainside explodes. Dude, we got to get the fuck out of here now. And within minutes... Like, honestly, within five minutes at most, it was this whole entire hillside. They pull out and drive away. We knew it was the real deal. You know, we knew we had to get home. Back on the point, his girlfriend was getting ready to leave. You know, my girlfriend was kind of freaking out and was like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And it's like, okay, you know, get your stuff and go. Then Sam went to help his parents pack up and leave. I told him, you know, this is this is real. It's coming right down Canaan, which like spits out basically right behind you. He points over at the now scorched hills. We were right directly in the fire's path, you know, and we knew that. At 5.30 a.m. on Friday, November 9th, L.A. County Fire announced a mandatory evacuation for all of Malibu, including Point Doom. By the end of the day, in total with the surrounding areas, over a quarter of a million people were ordered to leave immediately. Sam's girlfriend decided to evacuate. She left, but she was like, I lied to her too, and she was pretty upset with me for a little while because I was like, yeah, I'm going to meet you guys. I'm going to meet you guys. Just go. And I'll like, 
come right behind you guys. I'm just going to make sure my parents have all of their stuff. And so then a couple hours later, before all the power and everything went off, I called her and I was like, hey, so I'm not <laughs> leaving. <laughs> he was never planning on leaving. With the Bigelows and a few other neighbors, they started to fill up trash cans with water, rolled out hoses, did what they could to get ready. Then they just watched. His photos at 9 a.m. show sunny skies on the point and a massive smoke plume coming from the mountain. I don't know how to explain it, but there was like, we watched houses burn. We watched houses catch on fire. Here's video from 11.15 a.m. That car's gonna fucking blow up. The far off plume is now a black wall of smoke that fills up the whole sky. It's still sunny on the point, and the sun is shining on those massive clouds, making it look like some sort of ancient sea leviathan about to swallow the point. At 2.30 p.m., they hear this. They're saying the fire is at PCH and Canaan Doom Road, and to get out, but... They don't leave. And over at the Point Doom Club, Drew was still anxiously looking out of her trailer. We could see it building. The smoke was billowing out, just standing outside our deck here, and it was still on Canaan. She had the news on all day, waiting and watching. I called all the boys and I said, it's coming. Lo and behold, within two hours it was here. I mean, it came that fast and that furious. At 3.16 p.m., looking from the empty lot next to the Bigelow's house, you can see flames. Everything is covered in a thick, yellowish-gray smoke. And then, they see it. It's on PCH! It's over now, Sam. Oh, fuck, it crossed! We've got significant developments here, Juan. I'm standing on Pacific Coast Highway. You're looking at a home burning... The fire jumped PCH, and those massive flames there that you see burning are burning toward the area of Point Doom. The PCH was their last hope that the point might be spared. Video clips from Sam at 3.22 p.m. It looks like they're going to start. Looks like they're going to try and fight this side of the gully. Yeah. I think they know better than anyone that they can't let this fire cross. They watch as a helicopter drops water right in front of them. Come on, guys, put that out right now. There it is. There it is. Go. Despite efforts by emergency personnel, a fire of this size, fueled by 60 mile an hour winds, cannot be stopped. Hundreds of thousands of embers shot down the mountainsides, straight onto the point. The sky turned black as the Woolsey fire leapt across the PCH and onto its final sprint to the sea. When the fire got to PCH, I went and told my parents, like, okay, get the dogs and go down to uh, Zuma Beach, which is just kind of like always the evacuation place for everyone that doesn't really leave. His parents left shortly after. You know this beach. There have been so many movies filmed here. This beach has a longer page on IMDb than most successful actors. 
Zuma is gigantic. Miles of beige sand, volleyball courts, and powder blue lifeguard stands. It's also the lifeguard headquarters for Malibu. Drew was considering going to Zuma, too. We went over to the edge of where we live right here on the point and looked across to Malibu Park. And it just, of all the fires I've been through, this is the worst. It was the worst fire, tornado. You could feel the heat all the way over here as you watched Malibu Park just explode. Her youngest son, Andrew, was with her at the time. And then Andrew and I came back up here, and all of a sudden the wind switched. So they decided to head to Zuma. And on the way? The flames were jumping over our car, and he was trying to video it, and we were freaking out, and there's, there's flames everywhere, and he's calling everybody, it's on the point, it's on the point. Sam was still at the Bigelow's house. My mom came back and told us, like, hey, we're trapped. There's no way out. And... Over there, there was a down power pole over there that was blocking the road that was also on fire. And up there, that whole gully was on fire up there. And then our escape route that we were going to use, if need be, down to the beach is like the very far back side of the point. And it's this road that just takes you like right down to the sand. And that was all completely on fire. So they all got in their cars, him, his parents, the Bigelows and some neighbors, and in a caravan, they tried to find a way out. At 3.35 p.m., Sam videoed his drive. Holy fuck. Go! Both sides of the road are on fire. He's driving through what looks like a blizzard of embers. It was one of the most intense few moments of my life because we... Driving down the back road to the beach, we were com- like completely just driving through flames. Like you couldn't see anything in front of you. You couldn't see anything. It was so smoky and like instantly my car got, like I was sweating in my car. It was so hot from how close we were to the flames. They did, somehow, make it to Zuma Beach. Once they got there, they turned to look at the cliffs of Point Doom. It looked like the whole point was on fire. There was an orange glow reflected in the clouds above all the homes. They saw little explosions, pops of color. That's when we all realized, like, whoa, the point's burning. This is all new territory for all of us. Zuma Beach was ins- it was insane. Everybody that was down there was like, "Oh, you know, all the markets burnt down and the school burnt down and everything's everything's gone and oh, you live on that street, your house is gone, that whole street's gone." And you know, it was like people were just if you asked anybody down there like everything was gone. What was for sure gone was power and cell service. Communication in and out of this part of Malibu was non-existent. Drew had made it to the beach. Her eldest son was one of the lifeguards on duty that day. He and the other lifeguards were trying to maintain some semblance of order. Fire trucks moving through, obviously trying to get to areas. There goes a tanker, a water tanker truck. But 
A lot going on in this area. They were just trying to organize the parking lot. They had all their gear on. They were because there was horses and llamas and and cars and people. So there you have. They're uh, evacuating animals here on PCH as well. Looks like a Shetland pony, uh, uh, some sort of mule, and a horse. And I was trying to calm down some of my friends who had just lost their homes. And everybody was just a nervous wreck. Their animals in danger, their families in danger. It seemed as if everything still alive was at Zuma. Donkeys, ostriches, horses, all of them evacuated from local ranches. There were wild animals too, like owls, seabirds, rabbits, all nervously standing around, as on edge as their human counterparts. The sky was orange, quickly turning blood red. It was straight out of some nuclear apocalypse movie. The cracks, pops, and little explosions form the soundtrack to this confused scene of humans and animals. A lot of people in the headquarters that had burned out and were older and were having trouble breathing, so they were there to help with oxygen and everything else. It was so smoky, you could look at the sun directly without it hurting your eyes. If you stood with your back to the ocean, you'd see a wall of flames and billowing smoke marching towards you. That plume was so large, it could be seen from space. The air tasted like a bonfire. The lifeguards are even telling them, go, just go stand by the water. Because it was coming so fast, they didn't have any assurance it was going to not jump to all the cars that were parked at Zuma and the headquarters. And I mean, it was very scary. It was, a, you know, total, like a bomb hit. And everything was just going crazy. Meanwhile, Sam was going crazy in that same parking lot, wondering about his parents' house. I don't get anxiety. I just don't. I don't worry about things for the most part. But that was like almost like debilitating anxiety. I felt so powerless, like the anticipation of like tomorrow was just so wild in my mind. He was worried about his friends' homes, his parents' house, and also his job. There was close to $10,000 in tools stored in their house that he used to make a living as a carpenter, not to mention some very important photographs. So three months, basically before the fire, my sister passed away. And so part of that is if this house would have gone, every single picture of her would have gone as well, which would have been really, that would have been pretty tough. Sam had to get back. It was really, it was just like, is it there? Is it still there? What if it, it like, you know, and then it, it started, it's like, what if it is still there? Part of the the reason to go back, because it's like, if if it is still there, maybe there's a chance. Let's pause in the action for a second. I think it's important to remember that during all of this, they could have evacuated, left Malibu for the comfort of a hotel or a friend's house, but they didn't. Today, years after the fire, Sam still struggles to say why he stayed. I honestly, I can't really explain. I can't explain why that was never a thought in my head. It was always like a thing, you know, that it was just like, no, when there's a fire, you stay. You know, like I knew that from like the time I was like a little kid, you know, like you protect your own. I don't know. It was just like, 
natural uh, instinct. It was instinct. But I'd come to find out it was much more than natural instinct. Something bigger than the photos of his sister or his tools. Malibu has always been a fire escape. This place burns. And in the not-too-distant past, the people who lived here learned to live with fire. I've heard, like, with the real Point Doom Bomber guys, back when they were, like, here, it really was like the Wild Wild West. It's, like, far enough removed from the city that they lacked you know, fire support and police support and things like that, you know, that are so normal to everybody now. Back then, they didn't really have that. So when there was situations like this, they stayed and they, like, fended for themselves, basically, because, you know, no one else was going to come. The Point Doom Bombers were a group of surfers in the 70s and 80s whose legend is notorious on the point. Tim Bigelow would know. He was one of the originals. We were a brotherhood, you know, everybody looked after each other. I mean, that wasn't just in the water, that was in the streets, that was around the point. In their view, this band of brothers protected the point, the entire community, from small things like littering to wildfires. They were the enforcers during a time when Point Doom was largely isolated from the outside world. Parents back when Tim was growing up taught their kids how to fight wildfires. The Bigelow's home, which, if you remember, is right in front of Sam's, was directly behind the PCH. So it was the first line of houses. The Woolsey fire hit on the point. So Tim's game plan, if they could stop it at his home, they might be able to stop it from spreading to the rest of the point. I say all this now because it might seem crazy what Sam is about to do. He's about to go back into the fire You might be thinking, that's the impulse of someone panicking. I did too at first, but it's not. It's actually quite logical and predictable, but we'll get to that in the next episode. By now, all the roads have been closed by the mandatory evacuation, and police or other emergency personnel were turning people away. In all the chaos at Zuma, Sam ran into a friend who's a professional firefighter. So when I saw him, we ran up to his car and he's like, do you guys want to go up there? And we're like, yeah, let's, you know, let's go. And so we jumped in his car. Sam asked me not to share his name for fear of jeopardizing his job. Also, I should note, while Bo Bigelow was along for all these events, he declined to be interviewed for this story. Bo's covered in tattoos, wears a lot of black, and goes hard on the punk vibe. As a reminder, he's Sam's childhood friend who grew up across the street. And he basically gave us, like, extra fire equipment that he had as far as, like, fire turnouts. And uh, I don't know if we had helmets. There were a couple of helmets and masks and kind of things like that to make us look somewhat official. And he had, like, he has fire department license plates. At 5.17 p.m., it was pitch black. The only light, usually that of streetlights, had been replaced by the red glow of houses burning in the darkness. Oh, that's a fucking house right there on fire. I can't imagine talking myself into going back into that fire. But I can imagine things in my home that would make me want to. Like mementos from my grandmother. Things that, once lost, 
can never be replaced. And even when it seems like there's no chance, I'd still want to fight for them. But looking at these videos, I, I couldn't see how anyone could win against something so powerful. So he was able to just drive us through the roadblocks and he just dropped us off right here. Here, being back at the Bigelow's house, across the street from his own. Flames were coming up from the gully on one side of the Bigelow's property. This is from video he shot. Monty! Monty is Tim Bigelow's son and one of Sam's childhood friends. Tim's wife Lori was also there, along with another neighbor, Mikey Pearson, and his son, Emmett Pearson. Monty, you need to get over here fast! Not long after, Monty's dad, Tim Bigelow, shows up. As I was driving down the street, the neighbors, two houses above us were on fire, the house behind us on fire, burning right along the side of our property and all is on fire. And I'm going, oh God, maybe I'm too. So I pull in, I jump into action. And anyway, those guys were there and they were Sam and Bo and everybody was trying to do their best. He'd spent most of the day defending the house where he and his wife now live in Malibu West. His father lived in the Point Doom house up until two months before Wolsey, when he passed away. But it's the house where he grew up, got married, raised his kids, and he wasn't about to let it burn. Tim showed up with his game face on. I'll tell you, this is what happens to me. My senses go up. I just get into this calm. Think about it all that day, it comes back. Anyway, um, back to, uh, yeah, no, I get, I get calm and I get this, I go, but you always have to know a way out. You gotta, you can't just run into something. Uh, the guys are yanking the hose and running around and yelling, stop, slow down, you're gonna hurt somebody. Take your time. Tim began to organize everyone. So I got the hose and we still had a little pressure on that side of the point, but not much. We like grabbed some hoses and shovels and whatever we could and we were just, I was standing on the roof of Bo's house right there and I just had the, I had a garden hose and then our other friend Monty Bigelow was standing on the ground. They were spread out to try and defend as many sides as possible. The fire was all around them, eating up every living thing in its path. When I listen to these videos, the sound reminds me of sitting by a crackling fireplace or a campfire roasting marshmallows. But... Here, they aren't by the campfire. They're in it. Embers drifted through the air like snow falling, but they kept trying. So Bo was standing over at the faucets or the spigots, and he would turn off Monty's and he'd turn mine on, and I'd and I'd hose down the trees, you know, and hose down some embers on the roof, and you know, run over to the back and like put a shot of water on a little bit of hot spot that Bo's uncle was trying to bury with a shovel or whatever, and then he'd turn the water back off. Every time they put one flame out, the blizzard of embers would create ten more, but they kept trying of mine and give it back to Monty and Monty would start spraying down the trees where they were catching on fire and we were just kind of like switching off hoses back and forth and just like basically doing everything we could. At some point during all this, a journalist came by 
and snapped a photo of Tim. In the picture, there are two colors, fire and darkness. He's the only figure in the photo, a small black blurry silhouette lit up by hundreds of embers flying through the air. There's a palm tree that looks like lava is erupting out of it. It's the same one Sam and I were looking at when I first met him. At a certain point, the two-story house collapsed. It, like, it, it sounds kind of dramatic and shit, and like I laugh now, but at the time it wasn't funny, but like it was like a movie explosion. And the house next door just went boom, and the fire went up, the gas blew up, and it just went up to about 40 feet, and it was just pretty intense. There were pieces of flaming wood flying and just like all this debris that was on fire, like literally flew from back there out here into the fucking street. Excuse my language. Damn. That explosion was only about 12 feet away from where they all stood. It was the lone house between them and the gully that backed up against the PCH. When that happened, it was obviously very loud and... So we all ran out to the front of the house. They all looked at Tim with wide eyes and faces covered in black ash. Oh, they just all looked at me like, wow, I'm out of here. Especially my nephew, Bo, is a big guy. You're not going to be able to save it, Tim. No, it's, it's out of control. We're getting out of here. And I said, okay. Tim doesn't stop. Remember, this is the first line of Holmes hit. If he can stop his from going up, he can potentially save the ones around it. Said another way, he's not just fighting to save his family home. He's fighting to save his neighborhood. Morgan Runyon, who we last left driving into the false sun of flames to save his father's restaurant, was a bit younger than Tim, but surfed with the Point Doom bombers in the 80s. That calm attitude Tim had was echoed in Morgan's experience that day. Here's Morgan. The biggest thing I did that day was I said to myself, is that I wasn't gonna run anywhere because I didn't want my mind to run because I knew that I was responsible for my own safety. In hindsight, like I look back and I was like, I've never thought as precisely and clearly as I did on that day. He arrived at the restaurant in the early morning hours and began to prepare his defense. As I'd later learn, it's what you do before there's a fire that moves the scales of fate in your favor. Not long after, an L.A. County fire engine pulled up. And they said, hey, you need to leave. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not leaving. I'm going to fight the fire. And I said, let's do this. And they were like, we're evacuating. We've been ordered out. Be safe. And they drove away. That was actually a really, that was a great thing that happened because that was something that had always been drilled in me. Like, no one's going to be there to help. His dad had been the one who drilled this into him. He said, You're on your own, so get shit done. Reporting from an LA Times investigation shows in the early hours of the fire very few resources, personnel, fire trucks, and helicopters, went to trying to contain the Woolsey fire. In those critical early morning hours, the fire, fueled by Santa Ana's moving at gale force speeds, exploded. 
Fire personnel were ordered to evacuate people, prioritize lives, not defend structures. Simply put, in a wildfire of this scale and magnitude, there wasn't, and will never be, enough resources to defend homes. So, they told people to get out. Residents had two choices. Stay and risk your life, or leave and possibly lose your home, your business, your community. For the original Point Doom bombers like Tim, there was only one choice. Sam here. There was never any talk about like, dang, should we leave? Should we just evacuate? It wasn't ever like that. It was like, okay, you know, if things get too heavy here, like what's our escape route or like what's our next move? You know, it was, it was, there was never a thought of leaving. Sam, Tim, and Drew in Point Doom, and Morgan at the Old Place restaurant, all decided not to leave. They chose to stay and fight the fire, come better or worse. And you'll find out what happens to them in the next episodes. But one observation I wanted to leave you with, what was abundantly clear to me as I was reporting this story, is that here, loyalty to community is fierce. Like that invisible spider string, it binds these people and this place together. Each string on its own is weak, but together the web can withstand the elements. This stay and protect mentality has been woven into the fabric of this place over generations, beginning with one woman, whose shadow still looms large over Malibu. Who was she? And who were the original Point Doom bombers? That, on the next episode of Sandcastles. This episode was reported, produced, and hosted by me, Adriana Cargill. Editing by Sasha Woodruff. Story editing by Adam Whitney Nichols. Mixing and mastering by Kathleen Yor. Music by Marcelo Dale Vieira. Theme song by Medium Zach. Fact checking by Audrey Regan. Graphic design by Tomas Villasenor. This is a Wavemaker Media production. Thanks to KCRW for the usage of newscast clips in this episode. One more thing before you go. As you heard, this show is produced and distributed by a really small team. Everyone has full-time jobs working on this on nights and weekends over the course of years. If you enjoyed this series and would like to support indie storytelling, the biggest thing you can do is go to Apple Podcasts and rate it five stars. Just hit the five-star button on the show's main page at the top. And if you have time, leave a review. I know, every podcast asks for this, but it's especially important for independent podcasts like this one. We really appreciate it. We don't have a corporate media machine behind us or a marketing department to spend 24-7 for months getting the word out. Instead, we ask you to tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening, and see you on the next episode of Sandcastles. Castles.